It's Flat Out RC time once again. Welcome back. My name's Andrew Sill, the host of this podcast, where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking about radio control planes, helis, and drones. Now, for those of you that maybe listen to this podcast for the first time, I'm coming to you from the land down under Melbourne, Australia, because you know we do have an international audience here. So those uh, locals just understand why I'm just uh, putting everything in context. If you, and probably if you are listening from overseas, you can probably tell by my accent where I'm coming from. But anyway, uh, a lot's been happening, kind of. Uh, got a really good guest joining me this week. We've got an international guest. It's a guy that I've been trying to get for a long time. His name is Fraser Briggs, coming to you from New Zealand, the first Kiwi on the Flat Out RC podcast. Fraser is uh, a world-class aerobatics uh, pilot. Um, that's a lot of us know him from his, his uh, exploits at uh, the uh, Tournament of Champions in Tucson and the Tucson uh, shootout. So stay tuned for a good chat with Fraser Briggs. He's hilarious, so you've got to stay tuned. But before we get to that, I've got a few confessions to make. So what has been on my mind? I just went for a bit of a bike ride. Uh, the moment we're still in lockdown, a lot of Australia is in lockdown. Sydney, Melbourne. I'm not sure whether there's anywhere in Queensland where there's some restrictions. There have been restrictions around the place. As we continue to fight this dreaded COVID pandemic. Uh, but I just went for a bike ride and I was thinking about, okay, what am I going to uh, talk about what's been on my mind this week? And uh, a lot of it is sort of COVID related in a kind of way. So the first step is that we, we can't get out and go out and fly. Um, and it's made even worse when the weather is perfect. So I'm recording this on a Sunday afternoon. Um, and yesterday down here in Melbourne on the Saturday, the weather was prime model flying conditions. We're talking about 18 degrees Celsius temperature. We're talking no wind, blue sky. It was just the dream. Uh, now, because I still enjoy my hobby, uh, and of course the hobby takes on many forms, it's not just about getting to the field, uh, I thought I'd get out into the shed and uh, continue building a model. Now, I've been building... 3D Hobby Shop through extra 330 LT, 75 inch. So it's about 30cc size, but I'm making it electric. I'm not putting a gasser in it or any, any petrol engine or anything like that. So uh, it's my first bigger gasser. And it, look, it's been going ahead okay, but I've got a confession to make. And it's a lot of people are going to hate me for this, but please don't. Uh, I really am not enjoying building at the moment. At the moment, I know that may change over time, but at the moment, with so much going on in my life, so many things, so many other interests that I that I can do at my age that I'm into, I'm really not enjoying the time building this model. I'm doing it and, you know, I, I put my headphones on, listen to a few podcasts whilst I'm doing it and it's all okay. But some of it's just tedious. If everything goes to plan, I'm okay and I can just roll through things. But, you know, if you watch the uh, Flat Out RC Instagram page, I've been doing some stories, you know, documenting the build. And uh, I went to put the tail wheel on. And the tail wheel, you know, with these ARFs, it's, it's just an assembly process. You get the tail wheel, you put it on, you put the two Allen, Allen uh, screws in, and off you go. Uh, put some Loctite on them. 
went to do that and one of the blind nuts fell through so obviously it wasn't glued in very well it wasn't uh, very solid in in, in the bolts or whatever it hadn't bedded itself very well so then i'm thinking oh this is just slowing me down now so now it's getting tedious anyway i worked out a solution I basically got um some spare pull pull cable put the blind nut through then put a little stopper you know one of those quick links kind of allen key grub screw stopper kind of things i don't know what they're technically called but anyway put it on the end and i pulled this wire through um, first attempt didn't work very well. Second attempt, I put a bit of uh, thick CA onto the blind nut, hoping that I could pull it through. And it, it did pull through okay and, and positioned itself nicely. And then hopefully the CA would sort of dry a bit and glue the blind nut in place. Not a lot of CA. Uh, and that worked. Miraculously, that worked. And then I was able to put the uh, the screws in and uh, get them all tight and all that kind of stuff and no problems. So it's little things like that that just start to frustrate me when I'm looking at the clock going... Oh, running out of time today. So anyway, I'm getting close. Uh, I did another half a day of work on the plane this morning because, you know, here's another problem. I put the uh, cowl on, got the cowl all on, and then I realised that the motor is actually rubbing on the cowl because it's quite a big diameter can. It's a dual sky 40cc, so it's a bit it's pretty big for the plane. But anyway, uh, it's, it's a big can on the motor. And so anyway, it was rubbing, and it, we're talking millimetres in it. Anyway, I thought, oh, what am I going to do? So I had to pull everything apart, pull the motor off, change the washers and the, the mount so I could move the motor back a bit. I did have a bit of space uh, on the front of the cowl. Um, still put everything together. It wasn't too bad, but now I had the back plate of the spinner rubbing on the cowl. So then I had to work out another solution. I worked out another solution and uh, push comes shove. We're all good. We're all good now. Uh, but that was probably another hour of mucking around which i didn't really want to spend so i'm just finding it frustrating put on top of that is that i don't have a great work area i've got a single car garage and and my trailer lives in that garage and my trailer i call my storage shed as well because that's where my models um the big models sit so i have to pull the trailer out of course i've got to move the kids bikes out of the way all sorts of other things to get to it so every time i build i have to pack everything up so that i can put everything back in its place I just wish I had a nice big shed that I could just leave the model on the table and then come back to it and continue next time. That would really, really help me. Now, that will happen maybe down the track some point in time. I need to move house. But I'm just not enjoying building at the moment. I I, I love the flying side of things, but I've got better things to do than sit there and screw screws into tail wheels and line nuts and all that, which I know it's going to disappoint a lot of you. But that is, you've all heard about me talking about some of my dream models, the Super Chipmunk and all that kind of stuff. They're all future plans. I just don't have the time now. And I'll tell you what, pretty bad me telling you this, but I still love the hobby. I'm just finding it difficult at the moment. Guest time, my favourite part of the podcast, and that is when I get to have a chat with... Another fellow aero modeler, and sometimes they're a local guy that's from my club to, you know, the head honcho of the AMA, Jace Ducia. But we've got another big name. Uh, Fraser Briggs is his name. He comes all the way from uh, New Zealand. Uh, his nickname is Bogan. Uh, he does explain how he got that nickname. And, and anybody that's been around in the aerobatic scene for probably the last 15 to 20 years would know who Fraser is because Fraser was sort of the Southern Hemisphere, uh, you know, flying the flag for the Southern Hemisphere in, in um, competitive aerobatics. And 
you'll see by his story um, that the the events held at Tucson uh, uh, really mean a lot to Fraser, and that's really defined him. You know, the Tournament of Champions. If you don't know the Tournament of Champions, is well, it's, it's the be all and end all in aerobatic events, which was held sort of in that nineties into the, the early two thousands, which then sort of fell by the wayside and replaced by the uh, Tucson Aerobatic Shootout. And so Fraser shares a lot of stories about his time in Tucson uh, when, and a time where I think was the pinnacle of aerobatics. You know, that Tournament of Champions era was just amazing where we saw the best of the best shoot it out for really good prize money. So stay tuned. Good chat with Fraser Briggs. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this podcast goes because my guests had to send me a message prior to this recording and say, hold on a minute, I've just got to go and get another glass of wine. Fraser Briggs, <laughs> all the way from New Zealand, thanks for joining me. Yeah, great. Um, good to be here. And uh, I think it is only my second glass of wine, but I won't mention the beers that I've had beforehand. But it, as I said, it is Wednesday. I know. I'm still trying to think think what that means. It's still Wednesday. What happens on Thursday and Friday then? I'd hate to know. Well, it just, you know, it's like it just gets better from Monday. You know what I say is these people that don't drink, when they get out of bed in the morning, that's the best they're going to feel all day. Yeah, well, there's, 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 you're known by another name as well. You've got a bit of a nickname, haven't you? Oh, my nickname is Bogan. How did the Bogan name come about? Um... Well, when I was about 15 or 16 years old in New Zealand, this Bogan name sort of started turning up in New Zealand. And I was actually working in the school holidays for a, for like a sign writing company. And you know, I was only 15, 16 years old. And the guy that owned the sign writing company, he's a modeler, Tony Christensen. Anyway, this word had come on the scene. And, you know, I'm like the apprentice sign writer. And they just started calling me Bogan. Um, and no one, you know, back in those days, we didn't have like, you know, the, the, the bogan term hadn't really been associated with mullets and ACDC, but eventually it did. Um, when I, when I left school, uh, I went to tech and, uh, the school that I went to, you know, you had to wear a uniform. You couldn't have long hair. The moment I left school, I, I grew a mullet straight away. <laughs> anyway, so the, the bogan thing just kind of grew from there. And at my 21st birthday, my parents bought me a personalised plate with Bogan. Great. So, uh, yeah, that's just continued on from there. Now, of course, the mullet had to go because I needed a job. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, the name stuck and, is, and, and you know, it's interesting, how, like, it, it's stuck for such a long time. And, and we're going to talk a lot about, you know, your competition days and, and, you know, reaching that peak, I, I think, in, in aerobatics. But where did your journey in aero modelling begin? Because not many of us would, would really know where it all started. Well, it's all my dad's fault, Mike. Um, his nickname's Baldrick because he kind of looks a little bit like Baldrick off Blackadder. Now, you know, people in America, they won't have a clue what Blackadder is, but the rest of the world, they you know, they know English comedy. So we got this guy called Baldrick and he's a little short guy with a beard and so anyway um yeah my dad I mean he he was an era modeler um he I reckon that one of the best things he ever did was emigrate from England to New Zealand 
that was a good move. And then a couple of years later, I came along. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he, he, he was already into a little bit of aero modeling when he was a kid flying a bit of free flight with, with mates. And he was into model boats. And um, he's a builder, um, builds houses and an engineer. So being a modeler, you know, took his fancy. And well, I mean, obviously, when I was old enough to be taken to the flying field, let's go. We're going to the flying field. So he got me started. Um, I guess I was probably about five or six years old when I started flying. But you obviously must have must have taken a liking to it because, you know, if I took my five-year-old son to a flying field, he'd, he'd five minutes later take him and go now on board. Well, I mean, you know, things were different, well, 40 years ago. You know, we didn't have Xbox. Uh, we didn't have the distraction of the internet. So, um, and, you know, we, we, I guess to start with, we'd just go fly chuck gliders, you know, Bolswood chuck gliders, go and throw them around. And then eventually I started flying RC. But, you know, you'd spend what would seem like forever building a model so you could start flying it. And then if you crashed it, hmm. It was devastating. But, you know, I got out there flying trainers, and I'm, I don't really remember crashing anything when I was a kid. Well, I'm, all I remember is Baldrick crashing models, actually. You know, he was he was learning to fly aerobatics. So I'd be watching him fly upside down and then pull up our elevator and crash into a fence and think, well, what are you doing? You know, I, I, when I was that age, I saw some absolutely massive crashes. He, he flew into a power pole once. Um, there was like just sparks and shit flying everywhere, you know. It, 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 so yeah, I, I learned what not to do, I suppose, uh, off the old man. Yeah, but uh, I guess by the time I was about seven or eight, I must have been flying solo. I had like a low wing sport model, and I could fly the pants off it. But you know what was really weird was I'd learned to land it. We had this little tiny airstrip that we flew at, and I could land it no problem. But I was shit scared of taking off. Really? And yeah, you, it's bizarre when I think back. But, you know, I was really, and probably for a year, you know, here you go, Dad, take the plane off. And then, he'd, you know, the moment it's airborne, he's got to throw that transmitter at me. And then I'd roar it around the sky and land it, you know. I think, um, I remember we went, there was like a, back in those days, RC scale. That was the big, massive event, you know, they'd have 30 or 40 people, people turn up to fly scale at a competition for the weekend and, and we went to this big scale meet because dad was flying in it and it was in the middle of the North Island in Taupo and uh, that club had this really big sort of, it wasn't like a runway, it was just this big massive square that was mowing. So I remember Baldrick, he got me out there and he's like, right Morgan, to that, you, you've got to learn how to do a takeoff. And uh, after the competition was finished and people were packing up and going home that night, I'm out in the middle of that square and this thing was doing zigzags all over the bloody show. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that's all it took. One takeoff and then I was away. Yeah. And when did you yeah. when did you really start getting into the aerobatics thing and, you know, did it come to you naturally, uh, you know, at, at that stage or, you know, did you have to make a concerted effort to, to practice? I started flying a little bit of pylon. And I had like a, a model that was called a China Clipper, but I'd made my own version and I put a bigger rudder on it so it would hold knife edge. And there's a, the, the, the guy that is like Yoda for me in New Zealand, Grant Finlay, um, he was the aerobatic king back then. Uh, he used to strut around with long legs and short stubby shorts on. 
and uh, and I actually nicknamed him Auntie in later years. But uh, you know, I, I'd I'd go to a fun fly, and this guy Grant would be flying a a Calypso, you know, with a with an OS sixty on pipe, and he'd be knife edging at five feet off the deck from horizon to horizon, and I just thought, wow, that's amazing. I mean, it was literally like, you know, our Hanno Pretna. So that that got me keen. And then in the early 90s, the very early 90s, we had a Kiwi guy, Lloyd Dickens, that's like one of our administrator-type guys that, that flies, and he's involved in the hobby. And he actually went to America, and he went to the TOC, uh, it must have been the 99, sorry, the 1990 or the 91 TOC, one of those early TOCs where, you know, they just started flying those ultimate biplanes. Um, so he, he came back to New Zealand and he basically said, oh, there's this thing called scale aerobatics. And he, he got it going in New Zealand. I was um, already competing in RC scale. So we'd go away for a weekend with a scale model and Baldrick would fly it in the senior class, and I got to fly it in what was called team scale because I wasn't the builder, but I could be the pilot. So I'd compete against other team scale guys. So here's these guys rocking up with these scale models, and here's a 10-year-old kicking their ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so a lot of the scale guys um, found out about this, this um, scale aerobatics that was getting going, and a lot of the pattern flying guys got into it, and we all started flying lasers, two-meter lasers. And uh, there was one guy that he built the biplane, the ultimate biplane, and he had the Sax Dolmar 4.2. You know, it was just like from the TOC. Anyway, iMac, um, iMac just went crazy in New Zealand. So I started flying iMac, and then I got into pattern flying as well. Um, and I guess by the time I was about 15 or 16, I was starting to fly in aerobatic competitions, starting to go to the nationals. And then, uh, let me think here. I can't remember whether I went to a Trans-Tasman first or whether I went to a World Champ. So I, I think I went to a, a Trans-Tasman. Um, <laughs> so that's like, you know, Australia versus New Zealand, you know, we send five pilots to Australia. Or if the Trans-Tasman's here, they send five pilots over. And this is guys like Peter Goldsmith and Steve Coram, who for years would just, you know, kick Kiwis' butt. We, the Kiwis didn't really stand much of a chance, but I went to my first Trans-Tasman. It was in Canberra. And... Um, there were five Kiwis there. I'd been out practicing. I think I must have been about 17 or 18. All the Aussie scores were on the top of the blackboard, and all the Kiwi scores were down the bottom of the blackboard. And the Aussies, they weren't looking at the Kiwi scores, and I was actually doing quite well. Now, we lost the team event, but on the Sunday, it's individual, so it's every man for himself. And I managed to, managed to finish second just behind Peter Goldsmith. So that was like, wow, this is fantastic, you know. I couldn't believe it. Well, the following week was the Aussie Masters, and they timed the Trans-Tasman in Canberra just perfectly so that the Kiwis could stay in Australia for a week, and then we went down to Wangaratta. Well, during the week, 
all the news got out that holy shit, this Kiwi's come out of nowhere. He's come second at the Trans Tasman. <laughs> so I, I kind of rocked up to Wangaratta to the Aussie Masters and what, what, what you know, people are, oh, where's that Kiwi? Where is he? Where's the guy? Oh, it's this skinny little fellow, you know. Yep, it's me, Bogan. Here I am. <laughs> so it just kind of snowballed from there, actually. And the so rewind a bit. I want to ask you a question. You said everybody was flying lasers. What what laser? What model was it? What was it? It was a kit that you had to build or an ARF? Oh well, this was way before ARFs. Okay, so there were some guys that had got the plan for a laser. Okay, so a laser is like one of the original um, scale aerobatic models. It's kind of it started with the Sphinx Acromaster, and then and then it became the laser, and then after that they came up with the extra. Um, so there were guys that um, were building like hundred inch versions, but they had the motors didn't have enough power. Um, Baldrick got the plan and he scaled it down for a two meter version of a laser, which is, I guess, about 80 inch. So, the very first one of them that we flew, um, it had a one piece wing and that slid through the fuselage. And the fuselage was made out of blue foam, hot wired, and it was actually covered in brown paper, um, which was like an experiment. You know, it's a bit like wallpaper pasting this brown paper on, and when it dries, it actually goes quite strong. It was a little bit of an internal crutch, but the model was super light um, with an OS91 on the front. And at the time, New Zealand was starting to get um, recognised on the international scene for major sporting events, and uh, Peter Blake had just won the round-the-world yacht race in this red boat that had Steinlager. Yeah, I remember so that. So Baldrick painted this laser up with... Baldrick painted this laser with just red and it had this white Steinlager lettering and it looked really cool. So we went to our we went to our first IMAC meet at Taupo and uh, I guess we were flying sportsmen. There was only sportsmen and advanced back then and uh, I was quite excited because there was this class called Freestyle but Baldrick was up before me and he crashed the bloody plane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he crashed it. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a, I'm gonna do a spin. And he was miles away and he did this spin and then he came out of a spin. He put it back into another spin and he crashed it. And I was like, oh, Dad, you, you've, you've crashed a bloody model because you know you can share, share models. Anyway, so yeah, we, we started flying iMac, um, and that was the first laser that we did. Then, um, I built. I built a laser as well. My one was um, painted up in another beer called Rynek, and it was also made out of foam. Um, but then Baldrick um, progressed, and he made a plug and a mould for this laser, and he started doing fiberglass fuselage. And he must have put 30 kits out, you know, because everybody had a 2-metre laser, and now with an OS-108, put the tune pipe inside the fiberglass fuselage. You know, they were two metre and they weighed about 5.2, 5.3, you know, 11 pounds. So they flew really well. <clears throat> and and in the end, I had one of those lasers with, a, um, I think, an OS 140RX on a tune pipe. And, um, I mean, it was like, oh, we, well, we'd, uh, we were fl eventually, me and Grant... Auntie, we were flying these lasers, and we we were both flying advanced, 
and um, so together we moved up to Unlimited because Unlimited, we decided, you know, let's start flying Unlimited. And then from there, we started flying bigger models. Um, you know, we got into what was what looked massive back then would be 50 or 60 cc models because they're just a little bit bigger. Um, one of my one of my good mates, Hamish Galloway, his nickname's Worms, and uh, he he had a laser as well, but he was like, right, I'm going to take this to the next level, and he made this 2.3 meter extra, and it was all painted up, paddy wag stuff, colours, and he had a Moki 1.8 on tune pipe. Well, he turned up at my place to test fly this thing. I was like, "You're crazy! This is this model is just massive. It's I mean, how can it possibly?" Well, it, man, it flew so well, and and then I guess at that stage we just realised, you know, the bigger you make them, the better they fly, and um, yeah, yeah, that's certainly right. So did you? Uh, so you were competing, sort of, a, a, you know, through your teen years, kind of thing, and we quickly. Did you quickly make it to the top echelons of a competition at that stage, or um, it took you a bit of time? Uh, it took me um, a little bit of time in New Zealand. You know, I, I kept competing in the advanced pattern class. Um, I went to the nationals, came second, and I thought, right, well, I'll fly advanced for another year. I want to win. I want to get my name on the advanced trophy because once I move to F3A, it's going to be another three or four years before I can get to the top of that. So that's kind of what I did. Um, F3A was pretty strong in New Zealand back in the back in the 90s. Um, but what really kick-started it for me was they had uh, Asian Pacific Championships in Australia at Wangaratta. It's called the KAOC, um, Combined Asian Oceania Championships. So I um, went to the Kayok event with a couple of other Kiwis. Uh, Worms was with me and also Lurch. Um, you know, you, you've really made it on the modelling scene when you've got a good nickname. <laughs> so, <laughs> like it. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think I, w- I must have been about 18 or 19 then and I went to this, um, went to this Kayok event uh, in Australia and... Um, I think I came second in that. You know, all the all the countries were there from all around Pacific, um, Australia, and New Zealand. We had full teams, um, so I did quite well at the Kayok, and I came second. Um, by then, I'd been to a World Champs in Japan for F3A, and I think I came like fortieth or fiftieth. But um, sort of in you know back then, you, there's a hundred guys. I mean, that trip to Japan was a bit of an eye opener, um, but. Um, the um, tournament of champions was was pretty big back then, and uh, they were scouting for new talent. And Peter Goldsmith had been a couple of times, and I'd seen, you know, heard all about it. And we were flying iMac, and and the models were starting to get bigger. And I got a, I think what happened was um, they rung up Peter and said, "Hey, we're after, we, we need someone else international." And he said, "Well, this buddy." This Kiwi's just, but he comes second at the Combined Asian Pacific Championships. He flies iMac. They build models. So I've got a uh, definitely got to credit Peter with putting my name forward. So next thing you know, we got I got a fax. <laughs> you think, oh wow, I've just got invited to the TOC. What? So I was, I was at work, um, and this fax came through, and it just had it was like just like a standard like. <laughs> 
information pack about the TOC and it's got my name scribbled on the top in handwriting. You're invited. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, oh, I, I, um, man, that, that was, wow, what a massive change, you know, that was, it was, uh, wow, it was like. Just to put the, like, to put the tournament of champions in context, I, the tournament champions was really the biggest aerobatic event going around, really, like a freestyle aerobatic kind of thing. It was, it had, you know, the Chip Hides, the Kiko Somanzinis, the the biggest names in that sort of mid-90s, late-90s, early 2000 period was just a phenomenal event. Uh, and I remember the first time you came across my view was a friend of mine by the name of Paul Marlin had lent me a DVD, I think it was a DVD or something like that, of a um, of the Tournament of Champions um, one, of the, one of the years. And he's this this guy Fraser Briggs there, and you got a fair bit of coverage in this video from what I what I remember. Um, I think you were the newcomer, but you're also the New Zealander and the young guy and that kind of thing. Now, that tournament champions is, is sort of was done and dusted. There was there was a bit of prize money attached to that event too, wasn't there? Oh shit, loads. Yeah, yeah. You you could. I mean, at one stage, I considered taking a year off work. You could win a. You know, back then, the way that the dollar was, uh, I mean, at the very end, it was 50,000 US for the winner. And, you know, the way the dollar was, like, two to one, like $100,000, you know, that's, that's a good year's wages. So, but, you know, yeah, that was at the end of our TOC um, experience. Because that got that. they had a lot of sponsorship, I think, from casinos or something like that, wasn't it? Or... Yeah, okay. So the, the, the TOC was started by Bill Bennett back in the 70s. And uh, basically, he was just a modelling enthusiast. And um, <clears throat> he had the Circus Circus Casino, and he poured every every two years it was on, he'd pour lots of money in to make it happen. Eventually, he had the Sahara Casino. And I think he must have been putting up probably $250,000 US to run the event because there was prize money, plus he had to put everybody up in his casino. And, um, well, we did drink a little bit of beer, so that kind of would have offset it by a little bit. But, you know, and he paid all the judges to be there as well. So, I mean, like, it was a massive um, expense for him to put it on, but that's just what he wanted to do. And it basically grew the whole scale aerobatics iMac thing, you know, because he wanted the models to get bigger. And um, the first year that we got invited was 1997. And I think we got the invite through in about February. And we had till October to get ready for it. So I was like, okay, right. I'd already been looking at magazines from the TOC and Kike Samanzini had flown a 260, and I liked the look of that 260. I thought, yeah, there was a really neat photo of him in a magazine with his 260. Had a big, long nose. Not Kike, he has a big, long nose, but the model had a big, long nose. The canopy set a long way back, and, and you know, it was a bit like a laser. It was like, well, the laser flies really well. Plus, the other thing about extra 260 is it's got this mid-wing, so it's going to knife edge pretty good, you know. So we, I mean, we're based in New Zealand, and back in those days, there were no ARFs, 
and we were into fiberglassing. We'd figured out how to plug and mold. So we thought, right, we'll scratch build our own extra 260. That's what we're going to do. Well, we rang up Peter Goldsmith. I said, Peter, I'm going to make these models from scratch. Now, he, he'd got a plan for like a, a Godfrey 2.6 meter extra 300. 100 inch, maybe 106 inch, something like that. He says, I oh, look, there's this um, wing area. That's how the whole TOC rules are based around wing area. So the minimum wing area that you can run is 2,200 square inches, and the maximum is 3,000 square inches. And at the time, the only motor you could get was the 3W120. So he's, so old Goldsmith, or Waldo, that's his nickname, or Waldo, and uh, Waldo says, Bogan, Bogan, you've got to make the smallest plane and you've got to put the biggest motor in it that you can bloody get, man. So, right, well, that's what we'll bloody do. So we drew up the plans for an extra 260. We got the we got the three view of the real one. We stretched the fuselage. We got uh, Auntie, he's a draftsman. So he, he drew these plans up. Anyway, we... Um, when we went to set the size of the model, we made uh, a massive mistake in our calculations, which actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Because when we calculated our wing area, we hadn't projected the wing area through the fuselage, and that counts. All right. So we thought we'd made a model <laughs> at the bottom, at the bottom end of the scale, but in reality. We'd made a model that was at the top end of the scale. It was massive. And um, we, 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 I mean, we, there's a video. The video is called Pretty Bloody Good. We made these two models. We did the plug from scratch. I mean, it was like a massive task. Um, Baldrick was just putting in massive hours. I, I live in Hamilton. Baldrick's over in Tarringer. It's about an hour and a half's drive away. So on a Friday night, I'd be in the car racing over to Tarringer. I'd see what Baldrick had been up to throughout the week. You know, during the week I'd been working on the wings and the stabs, and we'd meet up on the weekend and we'd do some more work. And you know, at, at ten o'clock on Sunday night, I'd get back in the car with the missus and we'd drive back to back to Hamilton. And you know, Monday night finish work straight back into the workshop. It was it was full on. Um, anyway, so we we scratch built these two all composite extra two sixties. And they were ginormous. They were 3.2 meter wingspan. So we <laughs> we got to about April, and I think at that stage maybe we were still working on the plug. And we went over to Australia to the Aussie Masters to fly pan. And Waldo Goldsmith, he he had his model and a, 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 a well known um, Aussie modeler called Ian Bendel. He'd he'd framed it up for him. And there it was, and it was being handed over to Waldo so he could put the film on it. Well, me and Baldrick were looking at Waldo's plane thinking, gee, it looks a bit small <laughs> compared to what we're building. And then and then Baldrick, Baldrick says, oh, maybe it'll look a bit bigger when it's got the covering on. Yeah, okay, well. <laughs> so we went back to Australia. We kind of forgot about that. I mean, we went back to New Zealand and... We test flew our first model, I think, like in June. It was in the middle of winter. It was raining, and uh, and and the thing weighed 45 pounds, and and it looked really cool. We did it up in New Zealand, like Air New Zealand type colours, you know, with the white and the blue and the teal. 
and it had big ferns on it. Um, the, the guy that I've done the sign writing apprenticeship job for, he's a modeler and he just said, oh, Bogan, you, you just come round to the um, to the sign writing shop on a Friday night and we'll let you loose on the computer because I'm a computer programmer. And he says, we'll let you loose and you can cut out any graphics that you need for your TOC planes. Well, <laughs> I was there till midnight. I probably went through a couple of hundred bucks with a vinyl. And Anyway, so we, we did it up. It looked, it looked really good. Um, the... Um, we had to learn vac bagging. Uh, we had to learn the full composite technology. There was a guy not far from Baldrick who made Olympic rowing boats, and they were made out of Kevlar and Nomex honeycomb. So we went and paid a visit to him and saw how he made them, and that's exactly how we made our fuselage. I think the fuselage came out at like four kilo, um, and you could stand in it. It was so strong. What, made out of Kevlar? Mm-hmm. Well, it was Kevlar composite, so it was oh, like, yeah. you know, a layer of Kevlar on the outside, and then it had this, like, 4 mil Nomex on the inside, and then another layer of, I think, glass. Um, so, I mean, the thing was strong. And when we got to the TOC, we were the only ones with a um, fully composite scratch-built model Everyone else was flying models that were made out of Bolshwood, covered in film. Um, Compass had just burst onto the scene. They were Fiber Classics back then, and I think that one of their very first Compass models was out. And Andreas from Compass came and had a look at our model. He was like, holy shit, look at the size of this thing that you guys have built. And it had blade spars um, in the wing, like you know, like glider type technology, um, these big full interlapping blade spars, and the wing root was probably 110 mil fat at the high point. I mean, this was a massive aeroplane, but it, it only had this tiny little 120 cc motor in it. Um, and the funny part was, you know, we 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 got to um, Arizona and we went practicing in the desert for a couple of weeks. And we bumped into Peter Goldsmith, who helped us a hell of a lot. And and he introduced us to someone in Phoenix that we could stay with, you know, just a modeler. So we landed in Phoenix with these two massive airplanes. And here's an unknown model that we've talked to via maybe a fax or something. And he welcomed us into his house and his workshop. And, I mean, he thought it was awesome. I'm going to get to hang out with these Kiwis, you know. And uh, and then Waldo, he was practicing. We went and saw Waldo. There's a barbecue. And. I'm looking at Waldo's model. I'm like, holy moly, Waldo, your model's tiny. He says, what are you talking about? And then I opened the back doors of my van, and he nearly fell over when he saw how big these things were that we'd made. He's like, what have you bloody done, Kiwi? <laughs> <laughs> and that's when that's when over a few beers we realized. He says, I told you to make it 2,200 square inches. And we thought, well, we thought we did, but actually it was 2,850 square inches. So we were at the complete wrong end of the scale. Um, but the model was so big and so light that I had all the time in the world during, you know, the unknowns. You get the unknown, you practice it on a stick plane, and I'll be like, what's next, auntie? And auntie's like, oh, it's just a humpty bump boat, and you've got plenty of time. Oh, what, what's on the way up? Oh, it's got two of two. I'm like going up the two of two. What's on the way down? He's, don't worry, I'll tell you when you get to the top. <laughs> you know, we had, we, we had this plane that was underpowered, but it had enough power to get through the schedules, you know. The schedules were back then 
what we flew at the TRC is what you'd fly probably an intermediate now, I suppose, back in the mid-90s. You had to have enough power to do two snaps and keep going, and that was about it. And we had enough power to do that, and the, and the thing flew um, really well. And and then, you know, um, the, the first TOC that I went to, the weather was a bit shit, and we'd spent a lot of time building and as much practice as we could. Um, we were out in the desert for two weeks practicing, and uh, a couple of things happened. One of the, who was it? Oh, Waldo again. <laughs> we were short on power. He goes, Bogan, you know, you can put some nitro in. You can't put nitro or petro, Waldo. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been doing it in the racing for years. So we, we found a local model. Right, okay, we need some more power. So in goes some nitro. And that's when all the problems started. Oh, my God, what a nightmare. The, the nitro was like just making the fuel lines disintegrate. Um, the fuel bungs and the fuel tanks were disintegrating and the, and the carburetors kept on blocking up with all this gunk. And, you know, I'd be practicing on one plane while Baldrick was like full-on mechanicking on another plane. And then <laughs> there's a guy that we'd practice with out in the desert, Jim Dornberger. And, and this guy, he's cla he's crack up. He looks like Yosemite Sam <laughs> of Looney Tunes. Hey, oh, you, you Kiwis are running nitro? And we're like, yep, yep. And he says, you can't run nitro. Nitro and petrol, that don't mix. And uh, what are you talking about? Anyway, auntie quickly, he grabs a plastic drink bottle and he dumps the water and he throws in some petrol and he throws in some nitro and he shakes it up and sure enough, it separates. And Yosemite Sam, he says, well, there's your problem. <laughs> oh, shit. Anyway, we, we found that if we switched to cool power oil, which is a synthetic oil, that would mix with the nitro, which would mix with the petrol. So we ended up flying nitro because we, we just needed a little bit more power. Um, but also, while we were practicing, we bumped into Ivan Christensen from Canada. And he was really keen to meet up because, you know, Canadians and Australians and Kiwis, you know, we're the colonials. So anyway, we, we're out practicing. We're having all these engine problems. And, and he, he says, oh, Bogan, I, I know you're having – now, I've got to try and do a Canadian accent here. Share Bogan. Yeah, now, that's more New York, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, basically, he said in a Canadian accent, he said, I know you're having problems with your engine, but your snaps are shit. And you're going to have to get them snaps fixed up because you're going to get zeroed for your snaps. And, uh, well, oh, shit, what are we going to do? The leading edge on the model was too blunt. So we got into the workshop that night and we planed the leading edge off and we put, like, some big full-length stall straights, you know, like a bit of bit of 3 mil by 10 mil balsa sticking straight out. And we covered it in film. We went to the field the next day. Yeah, that fixed it. The plane was snapping much better. Um, I mean, it had such a big fat wing on it, and it was flying so slowly. So I've got to thank Ivan for helping me out there. You know, a lot of people that compete in the TOC, if you've got a problem, they'll stop and help you. And um, anyway, so we, we went to the TOC, and I came ninth in the first TOC. And if you make the top ten, you get to come back. So that that set the that, that set the second year, and we made another model out of the moulds, we made it lighter, 3W came out with a bigger engine, 
I don't think we've got enough time on this podcast to talk about the problems that we had with, with that engine. But what, what size was it? We spent it was a um, one forty, and it was a rear induction. And um, when it was going, I mean, it put out a lot of power. It was great. But we had problems getting it started. There were problems with the reed valves. At one stage, we were seriously considering putting an onboard mixture control because we could start it when the idle mixture was really rich, but then it ran shit in the sky, and so it needed to be leaner. And ah, oh, you know, we, we got to the TOC that year, or maybe even the year before, I think it was. And um, and Kike Summonzini, his dad, he's an engine guru. And he had basically taken those 3W motors and made them um, rear induction disc valve. And he had the power. Man, like, you know, back in those days, it was a power struggle. And whoever had the most power, they were going to do the best. And TK had just phenomenal power compared to everybody else. So, um, so the 98 TOC was my second TOC. We went back and I came ninth again. And it was like, oh, man, if we can just get past this, you know, we've got the planes, we've got past the engine struggle, now I need to just get out there and do an absolute shitload of flying. Um, so now DA comes onto the scene. And we, we you know, we, we were good friends with Dave Johnson from DA. And uh, even at my first TOC, they bent over backwards to, to help me out. Um, sent us the motors, 3W motors, that's what they were selling at the time. So they helped us out with those motors. And anyway, we went to that um, second TOC and Dave said, oh, we're going we're gonna to do our own motor. We're going to do a DA motor. Thought, oh, shit, this is, this is sounding really good. Well, what did work out really well is I'm in the Southern Hemisphere. So when it's wintertime in America, it's summertime in New Zealand. So they sent me a DA-150. We need you to get out there, Bogan, and start flying the pants off this DA-150 while we're sitting in snow. You can be out flying. And, um, and that's what I did. We, we, made, we made our third, or oh, I can't remember, might have even been our fourth model out of the moulds. Every year we went to the TOC, we'd sell one of the planes to help fund the trip. And we'd come back and we'd make a better model. And uh, we, we were starting to make the wings skinnier by now. And uh, we had this model. It was, I think, 42. Oh, no, hang on. No, no, no. 38 and a half pounds. The DA-150 on tune pipes. And, man, that thing, the power was unreal. You could go vertical. You could do an eight-point roll. Then you could do two snap rolls, and then you could keep going vertical and start doing more four-point rolls. I mean, it was just like, wow. And one of the biggest problems that we always faced is in New Zealand, we're at sea level. So you think you've got tons of power, but yeah, as soon as you get to America, you're up in high desert, high temperature, and you lose a shitload. And when you get there and you, you go flying on the first day, instantly you think there's something wrong with the motor. And, you know, you go down to DA, there's all these, it's funny, when I've been going there a long time, when we go to the shootout, there'd be all these first-timers that rock up to the shootout and they've come from overseas and they've been out for a practice session and they're back at DA and 
well, we think there's a problem with the motor. Anyway, all they do is they ask them how heavy the plane is. <laughs> and, and if they say 45 pounds, well, there's your problem. Um, so, yeah, you've got to make that plane so light. And, and this one that we made, man, it was it was super light. Um, so we went back to the TOC for a third time. I've been working a lot on freestyle. And one of the things that I noticed was um, Christoph, his freestyle was like, you know, perfectly timed to the music, lots of different things happening. It wasn't like elevated music happening in the background. So I was like, right, we've got to come up with some really awesome freestyle. So um, I actually, um, it's amazing how things work out. Where I was working as a computer programmer, there was another woman there who was into horses. Now, have you ever seen that horse dressage where they march yeah. around these horses, right? And it's like, how do they make this horse walk sideways? Well, she goes, oh, and I kind of described what I was trying to do with this music and this flying, and she goes, oh, oh, you know, there was this, this like, the TOC of horses has just been on, and it's been on in America, and it's all done to music. I'm like, oh, wow, this is sounding pretty good. So I, I watched this um, this VCR, and here's this horse doing this dressage to this amazing medley of um, Simon Garfunkel music. Three different fast, you know, Mrs. Robinson, and then uh, Bridge Over Water. And I was like, wow, this is – and then in between each music change, these drums would go uh, and a whistle. And I thought, wow, this is – this is really cool. So I had to hook up a computer to this VCR player to, um, to like, rip the music. And we had this old program called Gold Wave. And anyway, I started practicing freestyle to this um, dressage track. And it was, like, I, yeah, I put a really good freestyle together. And it had this really slow, like, high alpha rolling shit really close to the ground. And then the whistle would blow and the drums would go and the music would change. And I Peter Goldsmith saw it for his first time, and he was just blown away. He goes, Bogan, that is just the most awesome freestyle. So I was like, yeah. So we went to the TOC for my third time in 1999, and on day one, I was in, I think I was in third place. I was like, holy shit, <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, actually, you know what happened? No, on day one, I was up first in the freestyle, and, um, and the motor quit halfway through because uh, you're on tarmac and you've got to remember when you're taxiing around on the tarmac you've got the idle really low and as soon as you take off you've got to give yourself a couple of clicks more throttle trim anyway so halfway through the freestyle the bloody motor stopped i was like oh shit but anyway after that yeah and uh i'd been flying a shitload um so i made the finals and oh, I couldn't believe it. It was just, wow. I've actually made the final of the TOC. So the top seven go through to Sunday. So it's like a knockout thing. You know, you start on, I think it starts on Wednesday. It's a bloody long week. So you start Wednesday and you've got this known schedule that you've been practicing all year. And then they give you an unknown schedule to fly straight away. So you fly that and then you do a freestyle. So you get three days of this unknown known freestyle and then they knock out the back seven um silvestri from italy me and him were always nipping at each other it was either me or him you know 
right right in there anyway. So I I I think I might have just pipped Silvestri to get into the final that year. He had a he had a really cool freestyle as well. And you know, one thing about flying freestyle is if you've got to go after someone who's just put down a massive freestyle, you're like, oh shit, you know, how am I going to top that? <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that third TOC I went to, um, I'm sure it was 1999. I made the final and I finished fourth. And um, oh yeah, no, it was. Uh, who were some of the Who were some of the people you were awesome. competing against in that in that TOC in '99? I'm sure Kike would have won it, and then it would have been, okay, so I'm thinking back here. It would have been Kike, Chip, Christoph, then me, Sean McMurtry, and maybe Mike McConville in the final. Now, one of the things about the 99 TOC, this fell into my hands a little bit, is instead of publishing a known sequence for the year, what they did was they said, right, we're going to give you 20 manoeuvres. And we're not going to tell you what order they're going to be in. We're just going to give you 20 manoeuvres, and there they are. And each day you're going to fly this known schedule, and it's going to have, um, I think, 10 of those 20 manoeuvres in it, and the K factor is going to add up to 400. So I'm like, oh, okay. So <laughs> I'm a computer programmer by trade, so I wrote a computer program to sit there and figure out all of the possible permutations of of these manoeuvres so that you could basically go flying on Saturday and I could say, right, here we go, Auntie, I've just printed off 10 sequences that are legit. They are, they are 10 of the manoeuvres, they're in a logical order that actually works, and the K factor adds up to 400. So we would go out there practising their schedules. When I got to... Um, the TOC that year, I was practicing at the North Field with Chip Hyde, and he's standing there watching me, and and he's like trying to piece things together, and I've just like Auntie just keeps pulling out more and more bits of paper of all these schedules that all were like you know, and he's like watching me practice, and he goes, ah, oh, you know that that stall turn with the five or four up and the three quarter snap down, I saw you just do that at the end of the box. I thought that would have been a centre manoeuvre. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, yeah. So when we actually got to the TOC that year and they handed out the under of the known sequence for us to fly, I was like, yep, this is pretty much exactly what I've been practising for the last six months. And then the next night, the known sequence is another completely jumbled up thing. And you know what? It's pretty similar to another schedule that my computer program has been spitting out. <laughs> so, you know, that was like a little card in my back pocket where I was able to use my job and my skills to, to figure a bit of shit out. But, I mean, that year I just did so much flying that, um, and I had this real killer freestyle um, that, yeah, it put me into the final... On the last day of the finals, I um, I was last up in the freestyle, and I managed to I managed to win the freestyle. We had we had this really cool freestyle from the previous year, but what we'd done was we one of the things that always that I noticed about guys who go to fly freestyle, they fly the exact same thing all week. And you get to Saturday, and it's like, oh, I've seen this routine five times before. You know, we know what's coming up next. He's going to do the hover. So 
so what I did was I took my freestyle and it, people would be thinking, oh, we've seen this. And then all of a sudden the music would go like a big record scratch and it would cut into Jaws and and all of a sudden I'm sort of doing this kind of thing like a shark and then it goes into the hover. And So we, every time we flew freestyle, we changed things a little bit so that the judges would go, oh, shit, he's done something different. And then we had this um, new freestyle that we'd made done to Zorba the Greek, which is that, you know, yeah. Italian music that Greek gets faster music. and faster and faster. Yeah. Where they're smashing the plates. Anyway, we had some really cool stuff timed to the, to the you know, the bang, bang. Um, so, yeah, the very last round of freestyle, um, I, 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 I mean, that was a highlight for me. Winning that was just fantastic. And that moved me, I think, from fifth up into fourth. Um, yeah, you so, finished yeah, fourth. It's awesome. The, the, the amazing thing that as I listen to you is, the amount of effort and preparation that went into those competitions, not only from building the model, refining the model, but then practice and, you know, really paying attention to every detail. Was that something that happened organically or did you really plan out and really think about what you were doing so that you could perform well on, on the day? Well, I, I don't think that I really planned it out ahead but I've just got one of those like stickler for detail type personalities, you know, almost OCD now, where the slightest little thing really bugs me. And um, I guess that, that must have helped. But, you know, looking back, just to get to the start line with your model to travel overseas, it was definitely easier back then because it was pre-9-11. Um, so the whole travelling with models was a bit easier. And, you know, there were guys that were really keen to come to the TOC and we needed four or five guys on the team because just to get all the luggage there, um, you know, so each guy would rock up with a bag and, oh, great, well, your other bag's this wing box and another guy, he's coming, oh, great, your other bag's this fuselage box. You could travel 32 kilograms per, per um, suitcase. And to going to America... You used to be able to take two per person. So that meant each person, if you'd done it properly, could take 64 kilos of luggage. And those um, those big models would take the motors out, would put all them in a box, would put the, the fuselage and the wings in this big, massive box and would rock up to Air New Zealand and they'd, they'd sort of go, oh, you're the guys with the planes that we've heard are coming. And they'd see the size of the box and go, oh, shit. <laughs> but then, you know... We're flying to America on a 747. There's like an eight-meter hold in the back of a 747. You can fit a massive surfboard. So when you rock up with a box that's like 2.8, 2.9 meters long, the, you know, the people on the front desk kind of freak out, but the loaders know it's going to fit in there just fine. And then they put it on the scales and they go, oh, wow, it only weighs 31.9 kilograms. Oh, it's the same as a heavy suitcase. And we're like, yeah, amazing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the things got a little bit harder after after 9-11 with security checks and and then also eventually the american system got sort of standardized for the rest of the world now they take a 23 kilo box so it's a bit harder to take a big model but you can still do it you know you can get a fuselage with not the motor in it and you can get it in that box and it'll weigh it'll weigh 23 kilos and if you're lucky you might get to throw a pair of shorts and a couple of t-shirts in it <laughs> <You're> fine uh, <laughs> and uh when it comes to the, the flying practice, what was your your, your, your regime? You know, how often were you getting out to the field and, and how were you approaching that, that practice phase? 
Okay, so the hard part is it was always winter time here in New Zealand, so we had to go flying when the weather's nice. Now that meant Saturdays, no matter what the weather is, we're going. Luckily, the field where I'd fly at, pretty big aerodrome, and pretty much we'd have Saturday to ourselves. There wouldn't be too much um, club flying going on. And through the wintertime, the weather can be a bit shitty. So we'd be out there practicing and just like, you know, your regular modeler would just turn up. He wouldn't even get out of the car. But we're out there doing it. And then um, because um, I needed to go midweek, luckily the um, job I had, I, you know, the, my boss realized this was a pretty massive thing. So if I needed to take Wednesday afternoon off because Wednesday afternoon was fine, I would he'd be like, yep, no problem. And then I'd just, you know, work late to, to catch up. So that's kind of what we had to do. Um, we had just this big, massive folder of unknown sequences that we'd printed off. And I'd just stand out there flying. And I'd have Auntie and Baldrick calling for me. And, um, you know... When we ran out of those unknown sequences, it would be just like, okay, I'm not even going to practice. I'm not not even going to look at an actual sequence. Auntie, you know the stuff that I'm bad at doing, and so I'm, you're just going to read. You're just going to make it up as we go. And he he go right. I want you to do a humpy bump, and it's got two snap rolls on the way up. I'm like, okay, and it's got an eight point roll down. I'm like, oh, okay. Now he'd just basically pack in as much hard shit as he could possibly possibly think of to just try and get me up to speed and, and I guess keep me on my toes and I mean the more flying that you can do the better really yeah and how did you how did the models fare with all that practice things like servos and uh, that kind of thing wow well back then the servos were um I mean we oh, we had like seven kilo servos <laughs> and when you think now the servos are like 40 kgs we had we had like a pair of seven kilo servos on the aileron and then I think in my second year, we were getting blowback on the ailerons. And that was the biggest servo you could get. So we actually put boost tabs on the ailerons so that we had um, a mechanical advantage. We had a boost tab on the rudder. We had uh, we had three servos on the rudder, and they were down the tail end. I think there were two down the bottom, and there was one sticking out of the top of the fin. Um, as, the, as, the, um, as the technology improved... The gear got better, and we got into like eighty four elevens. Oh wow, this is fifteen kilos now! Woohoo! <laughs> I mean, we're still <laughs> we're still running four four servos uh, on the rudder. Um, and now I've I've got to mention JR. They they really helped me out um, massively. You know, uh, we needed help when we first started building the models, and um, we we talked to JR and. They, they apologised. They, they weren't really doing too much sponsorship. They had they had Team JR, JR in America. They had their sponsored flyers. But the New Zealand importer, um, Brian Borland, he said, oh, look, I'm going to supply all the stuff at cost. You guys need this gear. Well, the year that I made the finals, I think I um, finished, yeah, I finished first. Sorry, I finished fourth. But I was first out of the JR flyers. So the sponsored guys all got beaten by the amateur. Anyway, when I got back to New Zealand, JR sent this big long fax to, to the importer, apologising, oh, yeah, we're so embarrassed that we couldn't help Fraser, but from now on, you know, anything he needs, you just let us know. And literally, man, like they would just send transmitters, servos, extension leads, like 
in massive boxes. And that really helped because, you know, if you're putting an airplane together and you don't got to worry about, you know, where the, where the gear's coming from, if there's like a, a chili bin full of servos sitting over on the side of the workshop, you just keep pulling them servos out and you're screwing them in. And we, did, we really didn't have to worry too much about the, that gear. Um, but it was all low technology back then, you know. We didn't have power boxes. Power box came onto the scene a little bit later than when we started. So we had two receivers on long wire and we'd have the servos split between the two receivers so that, you know, one wing would be in one receiver and the other wing was in the other receiver. And, I've never understood um, that. I've never yeah, understood I mean, why but, do it that way. Well, um, I, I saved the model once. We had... Uh, what happened? We had a battery. We had a battery that wasn't secured properly, came unplugged, and the motor stopped. And I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, hello. The plane's flying a bit funny. I had one aileron, one elevator, and the rudder. And I managed to land the plane safely. Not a problem. Um, and that two-receiver thing, yeah, it, it works. I mean, you're either going to lose the rudder or you're going to lose the throttle, but you're not going to lose the entire plane. So... So that's what we did, but obviously, eventually, you know, Powerbox um, came out, bigger servos came out, bigger engines came out, and uh, yeah, things just got better and better. Well, when did the Tournament of Champions finish up? When was the last time the Tournament of Champions was run? Right, okay. So I went back in 2000. It, it finished in 2002. But I went back in 2000, and that was the time when I was like, wow, you know, we made the finals last year. This is, you know, this is serious bucks. This It was up to 40000 US. Now, that was like a year's salary. So it kind of got to that point where it was like, you know, maybe, maybe I should quit my job and, you know, just go fly. That was what Kike did. That's all he did. He just flew. And he had Saturday and Sunday off. He flew Monday to Friday. It was his job. But oh, you get into the final and then it's a mental game. You know, who can who can keep it together? Well, that year I went back in 2000. I I was in third place all week. I made it to the finals. On Saturday night, there was this big storm coming, and uh, we were out on the town in Las Vegas doing roller coasters and stuff. And I'm looking at the sky, going, "Oh man, there's a massive storm coming." And foolishly, I actually said to myself, "Wouldn't it be awesome?" If the weather was so shitty that they had to call it off, because right now I've come third. Well, I'll never do that again. <laughs> the next day the weather was shit and we had to fly in it. And it was horrible. Like we were all sitting in wing bags trying to keep warm. It was like, wow, man, it was cold. Um, anyway, what, I made what a mistake. And in, so in 2000. I was still, yeah, still flying the big extra, but on a DA 150, probably with tune pipes on it. Anyway, made a mistake in the unknown on a diamond loop, simple manoeuvre, had to have a roll on one of the legs up the top, but it was from upside down instead of upright, and I, I got all mixed up, and I get to the third leg, and I push to 45, and Auntie says, one roll, and I start rolling. Ah, oh, shit. I've done one and a half rolls. I'll have to keep going now. So I did two rolls, and that put me in seventh place. Must have cost me 20 grand, I suppose. I was just gutted i couldn't believe it i mean yeah yeah i was that 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 really i guess set me back a bit i was like ah oh, shit and then i i think then and then the, then i went back the the next year practice heaps but i didn't make the final 
I just, I was right on the bubble and I came eighth. I was, I was devastated. So I kind of, you know, the TOC was awesome and the high point, you know, we went five times. The high point was right in the middle. And, um, and then, the, then, then, it, then it just got hard, I guess, because I started trying too hard, you know. If I think, if I think back, you know, when I came forth, it seemed like it just kind of all fell into place. But then when it looked like I might come third, then I, it just all fell away. I was like, oh, shit. Anyway, so the TOC, but then Bill Bennett died, and that pretty much ended the TOC. But born out of the ashes of the TOC was the Tucson shootout. And, um, yeah, Dave at Desert Aircraft, he obviously realised that things needed to keep moving because he needed these this big event so that he could keep selling these engines. So he said at, at the last TOC in 2002, it was there was a little bit of a rumour that there might this might have been the last one, and Bill Bennett's health was pretty bad. And he said, you know, we might we might do this thing called the shootout. So we actually left the model in America and uh, we said, right, well, we'll be back in a year's time because we were on a high. Um, I mean, we had just missed out on the finals. I mean, okay, that was a little stumbling block, but we were on a high. So we went back to Arizona in 2003 to this competition called the shootout. And uh, you can just imagine a massive IMAC competition. So... You know, the TOC was the top 20 flyers in the world. And now the shootout is just a big, massive IMAC competition. I think there were 70 contestants that first year that we went. Now, you know, this is Sportsman Intermediate, Advanced and Unlimited. So there would have been 15 or 20 guys in each class. And um, and it was a lot of fun. Um, Jason, Jason Shulman won it. Chip Hyde was second, and I came third. Um, it was like, oh, wow. Anyway, the the Tucson shootout just basically snowballed from there big time. Yeah. Um, Do you think, like, if you you think about that era, the tournament, you know, that, that late 90s into the early 2000s, and then where we've got to today with the, the modern aeroplanes and engines and radio gear and all that kind of stuff, do you think things would have been different back then if we had that kind of gear, if you had the kind of gear that we've got now, that, that the flying would, would have been drastically oh. different? Oh, shit, yeah. I mean, like, the model that I'm flying now, if I had it rocked up to the TOC with that, I would have just absolutely destroyed the competition because it's literally the same size model but with a 200cc, you know? It's, it's the same size and the same weight, but the power... And, and the way it flies is just, you know, the servos are so much better, the radio gear is better. The thing flies on rails. Um, and also the other thing is now, look at the freestyle that's happening now. I mean, if you rocked up to the TOC um, and you laid down one of those freestyles that people are doing now, yeah, yeah. I mean, you watch those old TOCs and at the time, wow, this is fantastic. Oh, look, he's done this hover for like a whole minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, now, 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 guys are doing the doing a freestyle. They don't even do a hover. They don't need to do a hover. We all know, we all know that you can do the hover. So you need to do this other crazy shit that's so low to the ground. That I mean, now nowadays, I, I just stand back and just go, wow, these guys are out there smashing these planes up. And the one thing I'm quite proud of is that you know I've done a lot of freestyle, and I've never, I, I mean, I've crashed them. 
but thank goodness I've never crashed one in competition in front of a big audience because I can't think of anything worse. But it's almost like the young guys now. It's almost like a competition to see who can do the best crash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You you were you were surrounded by some of the biggest names that we've seen in aero modelling back then, especially tournament champion days. You know the Chip Hides of the world, the Kid Case Manzini's. Who were some of the the pilots that you really looked up to and, and got inspiration from? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, look, you know, Chip Chip was a massive inspiration when I was a kid growing up. I, I, I went to the Japan World Champs hoping to meet him in 1995, he, but he, he, he something had happened, he, he, he wasn't there. So I was like, oh, no. And and also this Hanno Pratner guy, I was like, wow, this Hanno Pratner, he's like God, you know. And he was going to be at the Japan World Champs as well, but he had had a, um, like a medical problem leading up to it and, and so he never he never came. So and and to this day I've met, tragically never met Hanno. But you know, there's a lot of other guys that I met. Um, TK, yeah, me and TK we've had some great times together at other contests that we've been to. Um, so he he's he's a lot of fun. I really enjoy um, watching him fly. Um, but and Chip and and Christoph, I mean, look, all of those guys in the top five. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's really good. Really good fun to, to be with them, um, compete with them. And then uh, when I started going to the shootout, um, Cheeseburger, um, Mark Leesburg, yeah, he, he, he started winning the shootout. He won just, um, I don't know, five, six, seven shootouts in a row. Um, and then in my later years at the shootout, I met Gurno. And uh, the very first shootout I went to, he was only about 15 or 16, and uh, it was it was really cool to see this new young guy. And and you know he's not from America, he's from Europe, so he's international. He's, he's had to deal with all those same problems that I had to deal with when I was the same age of how to travel, get to the event, and you know if you can just get to the event to the start line, um, you, you're doing well. Um, so yeah, I got to see Gurno. Um, I guess grow, you know, from a, from a young guy that rocked up to the to the shootout and started flying freestyle, and uh, in the last couple of shootouts that I went to, and I saw him win the shootout. Yeah, I, I was really stoked to see that happen. Uh, his flying style's really good, and and his snap rolls are really nice. I, I've I've spent a lot of time trying to do proper, you know, snaps. Um, unloaded snaps with a nice pitch and a break, and, and I was just so happy to see that Gurno was also doing the same thing. Um, in America, where they got this thing called the bump and roll, and mm. it's kind of like, yeah, you know, it's like, I mean, it 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 definitely got to be easier to do because the the plane holds its power through the snap and it doesn't um, jump off to the side. But in saying that, you know, the second year I went to the shootout. I won the shootout, and I won it because um, the judges were zeroing those snap rolls. And um, we went to the shootout the second time. You know, we had our model. I mean, out of you know, we'd made probably our sixth or seventh version of it, but now it had the DA two hundred. And uh, it's funny talking to Kike because he he says, you know, there's that movie the Tucson aerobatic shootout movie. That, yeah. That's so good, that movie. And, and he said to me, 
I don't know if it's on the movie or if he said to me in person, but he basically at some stage he said, Bogan, when I see you come to the TOC with that big airplane, I knew that one day when you have enough power, you're going to be a big problem for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and sure enough, you know, DA came out with the 200, and that model that we made in 1997 for a 120cc engine, we got the DA120. No, we got the DA200. And it bolted straight on the firewall. There was no motor dome needed. It was almost like it, you couldn't have got it more perfect if you tried. And uh, so I'd practiced in New Zealand with my model with the 200 in it. I did a shitload of flying. And then I went to America. The model that we'd left behind was there. We had to spend a day on the work, in the workshop getting the 200 bolted on. And I went flying at the TRCC, which is this flying field that's really close to the DA workshop. And Chip and McMurtry were there. And they saw me practice that day. And and I remember Chip saying, wow, Bogan, you've been doing some practice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, mate, I've been doing some practice. <laughs> um, but, you know, what, what actually happened was I'd started going to Australia to the Bendigo Masters because they wanted to get iMac happening in Australia. So they, they'd get me over and go, Bogan, we want to get you over to Australia for the weekend for the Bendigo Masters, you know. Come and come and help us get iMac going. So that's what I did. Anyway, one year when I was over at the Bendigo Masters, I was talking to an Aussie modeler called Hans, I think it's Hans Litchens, and he also flies full size. And he flies a full-size yak, and he does aerobatics. Anyway, we started talking about snaps, and and he started describing how he did a snap roll in the cockpit, you know. It's full up, and then the elevator comes off, and as the elevator comes off, the rudder and the aileron comes in. I'm like, right, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to pr- figure out how to do that properly, and watched a lot of full-scale planes doing these snaps. Well, I went to the um, shootout that year, and uh, I think at the end of the first day, I, I, the, the weather was shit. I won. I won the unknown. It was like, oh, okay, wow, I've just that's amazing. I've, I've won the unknown. But then at the end of the second day, oh shit, I'm still in the lead. I've just won another two rounds, and it was like, oh, wow, this is. I'm not chasing. I'm not chasing the leader. I am the leader, and then it just—it was like a exponential wave. It just got better and better. And by Saturday night, I'd actually won enough rounds. I didn't even have to fly on the Sunday. It—it it was bizarre. And so I did fly on the Sunday, and I won those rounds as well. It, I was talking with some of the judges on the Sunday over beers. And I'm like going, what's happened? Why all of a sudden have I come out of nowhere and won the shootout? And they said, well, every time you do a snap roll, there is absolutely no doubt in our mind as to whether you've done a positive snap roll or a negative snap roll because we see this big, massive pitch and it just goes wah, wah, wah. And sure enough, it steps over by probably 20 metres, but we're not, we don't care about that because we're not downgrading for displacement. 
But, you know, the, the, the other guys that were flying, they were doing them snaps that they'd always been doing, and they just started getting zeroed. Christoph was getting zeroed for snaps. KK was getting zeroed for snaps. They were getting really pissed off. Um, and I just went out there, and I had my jandals on. You know, I wasn't stressed out. I wasn't worried about it. And it was just like, yeah, it, it was just um, amazing um, how it, it fell into place, that one. It's interesting that uh, I had a... Um one of the iMacers on the podcast, um, Chris Rutter, and uh, over here in Australia. And he, I don't know whether he's on the podcast or he told me off air, um, but he said that it's all about the snaps. He said, you'll win and lose your iMac comp based on the snaps. And my question to him was, but how are the judges judging the snap? Because there's so many different judges that happen at an iMac comp here. You know, you share the thing. It's like, how, do, how are people interpreting the snaps? And he said, well, that's part of the problem as well, is that people interpret the snap differently. But, Visually, when you see a snap, can you describe what you want to see, how you think a snap should be flown or how the plane should look in a proper snap? Well, if we're trying to fly snaps like the real thing, you know, you see the real thing, it just does this pitch and then and then it does this auto-rotation. Um, and um, so that's the, that's, that's the thing that we, we were trying to emulate. But the other factor is, you've got to have judges there that are willing to dish out a zero. And it just so happened that at that shootout, there were enough judges on the line. And the thing is, if there's five judges and two of them zero you for a snap, those zeros don't carry. But if three zero, if three judges zero you for a snap, then that's it. <clears throat> you get zero. So it kind of fell into place because it just happened to be that there were enough judges who finally decided... We like the look of those snaps that the Kiwi's doing, and if we don't see a decent pitch on anyone else, we're going to zero you. And and so, you know, that, that obviously was a massive factor. Um, so, um, but in saying that, you know, the, the, that's what impressed me most about Gurno. He probably not pitching as much as I did back then, but he, in the last shootouts that he's won, I've watched him fly, and the snaps are just beautiful, you know. Is like this little. This, it's definitely not a what I call the bump and roll, but it's harder. It's really hard because um, you get this kind of acceleration thing happening through the snap because there's no elevator in, and so and and what the, the hardest part about snaps is landing the exit. And um, I mean, you know, you only have to miss by like ten or fifteen degrees, and then they're starting to knock points off. If you if you over rotate by ninety degrees, well, that's zero for the whole maneuver. Um, so for me back then, yep, mastering the snap was was key. But then in later years at the shootout, as I got a little bit older, I started having senior moments during the unknown. You know, like I've sat there in the in the RV, I've got the unknown in my head. I go through it and I go out and fly it. And, oh shit! I had to do one and three quarter snaps, and I've just gone done two and a quarter. <laughs> and then and then you walk back to the pits and there's a couple of other guys. Will Berenger, he's crack up. He's a he's a little bit older than me and he used to fly in the shootout and he'd come back just with a big grin on his face and Yeah, Bogan, you're in the senior club now. Yeah, I seen you I seen you do that two and a quarter snaps out there and go the wrong way upside down. I'm like, Yeah <laughs> So uh Yeah. So when So did... I, I, I at what stage? Yep. Sorry, at what stage did you uh, start to sort of back off with that? You know, the trips to the US. 
Well, oh, man. Well, I've been to the TOC five times, and then I started going to the shootout. That was, I think, seven or eight times before I won that. So I kept on going. And then I was kind of riding a wave. You know, I won it in 2004. I went back in 2005. I think maybe I came third. And then sort of for about those next two or three years, I was always kind of in the top sort of four or five, but but not not at the very top because uh, Mark Leesburg, he was the new guy to beat, you know. And uh, and then one year, I just kind of it just kind of got a little bit too hard that my kids had got uh, a bit older, and I just kind of needed to spend some more time at home. Um, I tried. Um, going with ARF models, I went with some Ravens uh, because it meant that I didn't have to build them. So we did that, and they, they, they flew okay. Um, they weren't as good. I don't think they were as good as the 260. One year we made this massive Sukhoi. Um, it was about the mid-2000s, and there was a problem with the DA200. They were having crank issues, so there were no DA200s. There were only maybe one or two people that had one. So we had to fly one of our uh, big models with a 150 again. But surprisingly, even though I didn't have as much power as everybody else, I did, I did quite well because I had to fly in close. And other guys with lots more power fly massive box. And I talked to the judges over a few beers, you know, at the end of the competition. I said, wow, this is amazing. You know, I've just come third. I've flown a model with only a 150. And they said, yeah, Bogan, but you've had to fly it so much closer, and so it's bigger, it's easier for us to see. So I was like, all right, anyway, over a few beers and a, and a steak with Dave Johnson, he, he said, oh, we're, we're going to do a really big motor for the UAV market, like a 250. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is sounding good. We're going we're gonna to go back to New Zealand, and we're going to make a massive plane. Now, at the time, RF. They did a 3.3-metre yak, and there's a few of them flying, and they are big. Well, we thought, right, well, we're going to go one bigger. So we made a 3.3-metre Sukhoi, <laughs> and, I mean, the thing was absolutely humongous. Now, you know those big rubbish bins that you kind of have at the back door where all your rubbish goes into? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how big the cowling was. Oh, so... The 250 didn't eventuate. We put a 200 in it. We flew it in New Zealand, and it kind of went okay. But when we got to Arizona, we didn't have enough power. So we, we took it out midweek, and we flew it, but it was like, ah, this thing's, this thing's no, no good. We need to wait till there's a big motor for it. So I, I parked it up at the DA factory, and lots of people saw it. <laughs> Bill oh. Hempel, he, he saw it, and he goes, oh, wow, Bogan's got this big, massive Sukhoi. I better get out there with my big, massive whatever it was he was flying at the time, and then he rocked up and, oh, where's your big Sukhoi bogan? <laughs> oh, well, we didn't have enough power, mate, so we've got our extra. <laughs> I'm looking, yeah. at, the, I'm looking but, at a photo of the Sukhoi not now on my computer. It is massive. Oh, yeah. And, and now now that Sukhoi, I've still got it. Um, I've got to make some new wings. We have problems with wings. And possibly I'll put the new DA215 in it and maybe fly it at some air shows and stuff. But to compete with that thing at the shootout... It needs a DA three hundred. Yeah, um, it's big motor. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, you know, it's those big round cow models. There's like a. Um, they only go so fast, no matter how much power you put in them, and when it gets windy, you know. So um, 
maybe if we had have done an extra instead of Sukhoi, it might have been a might have been a different story. Yeah. But um, so so getting back to your question about when I kind of stopped going to the shootout, I kind of had a little bit of a break. Um, one of my boys, Max, seventeen now, but you know he would have been like five, six, seven, eight during all that sort of carry on. And he said, "Oh, Dad, on the on this big plane that you fly, it lists out all of these years that you've been at 1997, 1998, and you know, da 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 da, right through to 2009." And he says, "Oh, what? Well, where's 2010 and 2011?" And I just tapped him on the head. <laughs> <laughs> said, oh, just yeah, just got too hard, mate. Um, but um, but." You know, um, my eldest son Jared, he's twenty-one now, and he, 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 like me, quite competitive, and he started getting really good. And so through those years that I was wasn't at the shootout, it was because I was spending time coaching him. And um, the other son, Max, the younger one, he doesn't fly much. I uh, see he flies a little bit, but he doesn't have the same interest. So I coach soccer for, with him. So we've spent we've spent like his. 10, 10 years of uh, him doing soccer on the weekends, which is something totally different, but I enjoy it. Um, so I went back to the I went back to the shootout in two thousand and fifteen, and I went um, with a new model. We um, thought, right, we've had this extra two sixty since nineteen ninety seven. What we need now is we need an extra three hundred because it's got the longer longer canopy. And uh, well, oh yeah. So a real awesome modeler in New Zealand called Rodney Ford. He's like, oh yeah, I'll draw it up, Logan. He's got a few threads on um, flying giants and RC universe of projects that that he's done, and um, and he drew up this extra three hundred. Oh yeah, man. So a little bit of input from me, and we had this extra three hundred. We want to make it just a little bit bigger, longer than the two sixty we used to do. Uh, so that's got the three hundred. Um, extra 300. It's got the DA200 in the front, and man, that thing flies so good. Um, so we did a plug and mold. Um, by now, Baldrick's kind of not doing as much um, with me as what he used to do. He's more into the old style scale stuff. And but um, he he helped make the mold for that fuselage, uh, and then I made wing molds, and uh, so I started doing my own composite wings. And I kind of got to that stage where I've done some ARF Chinese-made um, models, and I got pissed off with the whole spare parts, you know, out of control type, you know, not not being able to be in control of my destiny type thing. Uh. So that's why I kind of decided, right, I'm going to bloody go back to spending time in the workshop. I'm going to be having my own plug and molds. If I if I go out there and I have a problem with a wing because it's got a two degree twist in the wing, then I'm going to make myself a perfectly straight wing and throw the old wing away. So you know I, I spent a lot of years making components, making them lighter to a stage where I took it to the shootout and um, I was like, yeah man, this thing this thing flies really well. And so of course Jared he got the flight as well. So he flew in unlimited. I flew. In, um, in the invitational class. Um, the first year, actually, 2015, Jared just came to watch. Uh, but then we, we went back as a whole family just a couple of years ago. 
Um, so my wife Trina and Max and Jared and Jared's girlfriend, we all went to the desert, and um, and we had it was great. We hired an RV in LA. It was like, man, I've done this so many times. I know all the ins and outs of how to do this trip. It's going to be easy. Uh, the only problem was I, I sort of described how hot it is in the desert to my wife. So all she did was pack shorts and t-shirts and um oh yeah you know where this is headed it was <laughs> the cold it, it was the coldest shittiest trip to arizona i mean I, I that's one of the things that i love about going to the toc and the shootout is arizona it's awesome i mean the weather's so nice it's like 30 degrees you don't get sunburned um the uh, we we met some great people in arizona john heigl and lisa heigl you know, they, they basically, they just take us in. Um, we'd go and stay with them for a, for a couple of weeks. And it almost got to a stage where the flying got in the way of the socializing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. we'd be like, oh, is there, hope there's another good barbecue happening tonight. Oh, tonight we're having ribs, Bogan. Oh, this is fantastic. Oh, we can sit around the, sit around the fire outside and drink some more Corona. Yep. <laughs> no, well, it, it sounds like like that whole Tucson thing really means a lot to you. And you know, as I said earlier, that's how I well, I know you from from you know the trips to Tucson. What what are your future plans in, in as far as competition goes? Do you think you'll keep on going down the aerobatic route or do something different? Oh no, I, I mean I'll still keep flying aerobatics, but you know I I do fly other stuff. I fly pylon as well. I, I'm um a bit I fly pylon to a stage where the Kiwis are like going, oh, Logan, we, we want you to come to the world champs and fly pylon because you know I got the I got the flying skills, but you need a really good motor man um, to do that that sort of stuff. So I fly an F3D pylon. I, I think my fastest time is like a one minute and four seconds. So I'm sort of that that's that's a lot of fun. Um, doing a bit of scale modelling, um, you know. Um, putting rivets on things and thinking, oh, the, you know, spending time on, you know, the missus comes into the shed and she looks at this plane and she goes, are you still making that bloody plane? And I, I say, well, you know, it's a bit like your garden. It's never really finished, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. But, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not at that stage where I'm, I'm ready to throw down the, the towel and, and stop. I mean, I, I've started flying pattern again um, quite a lot in the last five or six years, um, I moved out to the countryside. So I've got a couple of acres. I can fly foamies and stuff out here. And I, I started flying electric pattern at home, which is really neat if you can, oh, shit, look at that weather out there, you know. But then I started getting pissed off with the batteries. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah. You know, me and Jared would go out for a fly. We've got this electric plane. Oh, this is great. Oh, great. You've had a seven-minute flight. Oh, I get a seven-minute flight. Oh. Now we need to charge batteries up. I said, you know, Jared, when I was your age, I used to go out with a gallon of fuel and I'd fly all bloody day. This batteries thing's really bugging me. I said, what we're going to do is we're going to get a YS. He goes, what's one of those, Dad? I said, well, that's what I used to fly. <laughs> I said, that's a big, big four-stroke, mate. He's like, oh, that sounds pretty good. You know, I said, and what's more, every time you fly it, you can get a 14-minute flight. And you can, and at the end of the day, if it's still daylight and you've still got fuel, you just keep flying. So, um, oh, well, I mean, sounds good in theory, but you know, yeah. 
never happens. You do have to be a pretty clued up motor man to be still flying YS, and 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 some days you think, oh, why, why am I doing this? But then other days you're like, oh yeah, look at this, I've got all the power, and it's windy, it's blowing twenty knots, and I can still do <laughs> the last maneuver of the yeah. schedule. Massive, yeah, yeah. So I'm actually building a biplane at the moment, um, an F3A biplane. Um, needed to build one of them a few years ago, really. Um, it'll have a big YS in it. Um, um, so that, that's keeping me busy in the shed while it's winter. Um, I've got a question for you that I've never thought of asking anybody this question, but you're the perfect person to speak to about this. And you... You started flying at a very young age. You started competing at a young age. And now you, you, I think you're a similar age to myself. And what have you noticed as far as your ability to fly? Like over the years, do you think it's become harder for you with age or the same? Or, you know, what, what have you noticed over that period of time that you've been flying? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's easier than it used to be, I think. Definitely easier, um, and it's. I, f- I guess it's a little bit harder now to be as motivated as I used to be. You know, I used to get out there and do a shitload of flying. Um, I, I don't do that anywhere near as, as much as I used to. And I guess the what I have noticed that's got harder is I'd go to a competition and I'd be out there practicing out in the desert and I'd be really enjoying it. And then the competition would start, and then all of a sudden I'd get really nervous and think, ah, oh, this was fun up to now. Why, why are we, why, Baldrick, why are we still bloody doing this? And he'd say, I don't know, Bogan. <laughs> I'm, I'm still having a bloody good time. Are you having a good time? I'm like, well, I, I kind of I was yesterday at that barbecue that we had, but now it's got all serious. You know, Can we just go pra- practicing again? Um, so th- there is that. I, I mean, look, I still enjoy it as much. As I always did, um, I've learnt. I've learnt a shitload. Um, you know, when when I rock up to a, a flying field now, uh, a, a flying field that I've never flown at before, usually the first thing I do is go and have a little bit of a ten minute walk and just suss out some of the obstacles because when I was younger, I used to crash into them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or I was like, oh shit, I've 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 just run out of fuel and now I'm I don't know where I'm going to land. Whereas now I instantly kind of I kind of know. And uh, I'll watch other people fly. I watch some guy, you know, flying some scale model, and and I'll see a flame out happen, and then I'll see what he does, and just go, oh no, I wouldn't have done that. And you can, I, I it's almost like I can see the crashes happening before they've even yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's that's one thing that I guess, you know, I'm 45 now, so um, yeah, I guess almost 40 years of of flying RC. Yeah, and not just flying it, flying it at an amazing level as well. So, you know, I, really, I think a lot of – I mentioned to a few people that I know that fly aerobatics that I was going to have a chat with you, and they were like, really? Oh, I can't wait to listen to that. No, I'm sure they're going to be pleased <laughs> with what they've heard. Now, tell me a bit about – you're the first Kiwi that I've had on the on the podcast. Um, and so let's use this opportunity. Tell me a bit about what the flying scene is like in New Zealand. Oh, well, it's pretty laid back. Um, we have almost 2,000 members of the Model Flying New Zealand Association. Um, but we only really have about 10% of those modelers that fly competition. 
And of course, out of that 10%, it's broken. So we're talking 200 people. That 200 people is broken down into soaring, aerobatics, control line, free flight. So when we go to our nationals, our nationals are at New Year's. I've been going to nationals since I was bloody five years old. It's like a, you could almost call it like a jamboree, you know, it's like a huge social gathering. There's five days of flying, there's some serious flying, but there's some serious bloody, let's just call it socialising. I mean, like, one, you know, I remember one year not long ago, uh, first night of the nationals, it's like a huge party because people haven't seen each other for a few months. And, oh, shit, is that the sun coming up over there? Oh, shit, we, better, <laughs> we, better, we better get some sleep. I mean, you know, I mean, there's some guys that go to the Nationals deadly serious, but there's other guys that they, the, they don't get the toss. They're there for a bloody good time. And you know what? Most modelers in New Zealand, um, there's not that many serious, serious guys. I know. You know, we, we'd have like a high-neck event. we get maybe 15 guys coming away for the weekend. We have a bloody good weekend away. And then every now and again, you know, we get a new guy come along and he's, he, I remember one guy saying to me on Saturday night over a few beers, and he says, oh, I thought you guys that flew aerobatics were like really, really serious, but I've just realised this is just an opportunity to get away for the weekend. I'm like, have you just realised that, mate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, um, we, we had, I used to run an event in New Zealand called the Rumble, and it was our big um aerobatics event that started off as being combined pylon pattern and imac over three days so we'd fly pylon on friday afternoon we'd fly say imac on saturday and then we'd fly pattern on sunday eventually people went you know what we, we're spending too much time changing things let's just all fly one thing right okay we're going to fly imac well at the at the, the best that ever got was 50 um, contestants registered eight from Australia. Crispy Chips, he was there. Bones was there. Um, oh. Mark, Mark Easton came over. Richo, it was awesome. You know, eight Aussies came to New Zealand and flew IMAC. Mm. Um, Snoopy, he was one of them. Um, but it was it was really good, and we and we we have a massive marquee on Saturday night. Right now, okay. You want to start hearing some funny stories? <laughs> so, we, 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 me and this other mate of mine, Marshy, we were the basically running this event. So on Saturday night, we have an event called the Undy Hundy, and we supplied um, teams. Each, each, all of these, you know, fifty modelers had to make up teams of about five or six people, and they all had to pay twenty bucks each. So each team gets supplied with a, a hobby zone Piper Cub, and um, and each team have got like you know 15 minutes to assemble this thing out of the box, do a colour scheme, come up with something. The teams have all got like costumes and stuff that they've turned up in, and then we judge you know who's done the best. You know like maybe the ladies are the judging crew for that. Okay, so that's the first part of the undie hundie. Now it gets onto the flying section. Each team were supplied one box of beer. Now, you seen that movie Borat? Yes. Right, you seen the G-string swimming costume that he wears? The mankini. The mankini. So each team gets supplied with this fluorescent <laughs> green mankini. It's called the Undy 
Hundy, right? So you have your team has to do a hundred laps. We've put out there's like two pylon poles out there, right? And you've got to do as a team a hundred laps with this Piper Cub. The box of beer has to be consumed during the hundred laps, and the pilot has to be wearing the undies. Okay, now obviously for anyone that's not from Australia or New Zealand, don't know what undies are. Those are underpants, right? So undie hundy. So, you know, can you imagine this one dude, he's flying, he's got these crazy Borat underpants on, and and at the same time, they're holding a beer up to him and making him drink it. He does his 10 laps, and then the next guy, he has to get into the same undies, and he does his 10 laps. Oh, I mean, it was just 20 minutes of just absolute carnage, and these Piper Cubs were just completely destroyed um, by the end of it. And it was literally... You know, the first team that could do the 100 laps was usually the last guy standing anyway. Um, so the Undy Hundy was fantastic. We started with Piper Cubs, and then we upgraded to Trojans. Ooh. So, right, the, yeah, Piper Cubs, they fly a bit shit compared to a Trojan. Okay, right, we're getting Trojans. So, you know, okay, guys, it's $40 each because these Trojans are a bit more expensive. But at the end of it, you're probably going to end up with a Trojan. Well, not many of them mm-hmm. actually survived. <laughs> But th- those are the sort of things that, you know, we'd, we'd get up to at our events that we have over here. I don't know where you would come up with such an idea. Well, what happens is we sit in the spa pool. <laughs> now, for for you Americans listening, a spa pool is a jacuzzi. Anyway, so we basically get in the spa pool, and I'll tell you, that is where we've come up with some of the most amazing ideas while we've been sitting in the spa, drinking beers, uh, you know, and sure enough, that's how these things like the Undy Hundy were. Uh, I mean, one year in the Sparkle, Baldrick says to me, Morgan, I've had a bloody great idea for freestyle. Oh, okay, Baldrick, what is it? Right, what we're going to do, right, is we're going we're gonna to put like a big wheel, like the size of a pizza, a skinny, skinny wheel that's like really big, and we're going to put it in the wing, and you're going to press a button, and it's going to it's going to like retract out of the wingtip, and you're going to come down the runway on the knife edge and do a touch and go. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, mm, have another one. Yeah, have another one, Baldrick. That one's not going to be so great, but it's, you know, and that, the, those are the sort of things that we'd come up with in the sparkle. That's, that's a really good idea. You should, you should. You should do that. This is an experiment. We did it. We, we, well, another one of his ideas was, right, Bogan, here's what we're going to do, right? We're going to have a flag, and it's going to be inside the model. And during freestyle, we're going to, we're going to, first of all, he, he thought we were going to, like, we're going to somehow pick up a flag off the ground with, like, a hook and tow, tow the New Zealand flag. Mm. Oh, that, that, that. But we, we went out and practiced it. It was bloody complicated. Anyway, so then he's like, right, what we're going to do is we, he actually made this big carbon fiber tube that kind of sat in the fuselage behind the pilot's head and it kind of aimed down towards the tail wheel and it had this big New Zealand flag in it and 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 we, we practiced with that. We shot that bloody flag out the end. Oh, really? And all of a sudden, we were, we were towing a New Zealand flag halfway through freestyle. It was, it was really cool. Um, but um, we, we had a problem, and that model got crashed um, like a week before the TOC. And, oh, man, the whole thing turned to shit. And, and we, we got a new model going just in time. 
um, but the whole flag thing just kind of went out the window. So that was one thing that we kind of we kind of worked on um, for one of the one of the years of Baldrick's crazy ideas. Yeah. This this you, you've got a business called PPG, uh, and I asked you off air at the start. You know, it looked like you were making aeroplanes and selling a few of these composite planes, but now you're telling me it's it's sort of moulded now to PPG RC. Tell me a bit about it. Okay, right. So PBG is pretty bloody good. So we've actually made movies. We, I, I really need to put them on YouTube, and this is probably going to um, be what, what makes me sort of go and get that sorted so that you can put a link to the movies. Yeah. So when we were building that first ever TOC model, we made this. We, video, we videoed every weekend. We made like two or three minutes of footage. And we didn't realise, but we were saying, how, how does that look, Bogan? And I'd say, well, that looks pretty bloody good. And, and you know, Baldrick would be there. What have you been up to, Baldrick? Well, I've been working on this bloody new cowling this week. What do you think? And, well, it looks pretty bloody good. <laughs> so we we called the movie Pretty Bloody Good. And you get to see the first model from scratch, basically two minutes every weekend. You know, in half an hour, you get to see a TOC model get made in front of your very eyes. Well, then there's some footage from in America, and then we did Pretty Bloody Good 2, and we did Pretty Bloody Good 3. So there's actually three. There's like a whole um, a whole oh, mini-series of movies. Yeah, you got to see them. So um, I do have them on DVD. They're really funny. I will put them on YouTube. I've, I've, I've literally I've ripped, the, I've ripped the files. I've just got to post them. Uh, anyway, so that started off this whole PBG thing. So Baldrick was doing lasers. So someone wants a kit for a laser. Yeah, okay, sweet. Yeah, what's the what's the manufacturer? PBG. Okay, sweet. So then we started calling ourselves PBG Composites. And, um, I mean, we, we did a um, two-meter extra, 260 as well. So Baldrick was pumping out kits for them. Um, then Baldrick started doing carbon fiber wing tubes. And... And this all started because, I guess, around about the year 2000, he was he got pissed off with how much it cost to buy a gator wing tube with a cardboard socket, and he was like, I'm going to bloody figure out carbon fibre bloody wing tubes. So in, in, um, in New Zealand, we have this massive boating industry, and there's a factory that makes carbon fibre um, masts, for big, massive sailing boats, and and they also make carbon fibre tubes for uh, rowing oars. Yeah. Anyway, so Baldrick contacted the factory and said, right, we want to make carbon fibre tubes. We want a 50 mil, 40 mil, 30 mil, and then these bloody Americans want inch and a half. Oh. So we came up with all these different sizes of all these tubes, and we were the first ones making carbon fibre tubes. So Baldrick was, um, he was selling these bloody carbon fibre tubes all over the world. So that was PBG. Um, eventually, China figured out how to make a carbon fiber tube, <laughs> and that was that was Baldrick Bucket. Uh, so, um, but anyway, so he he kind of tapered that off. But you know, we've always sold DA in New Zealand. Um, we've been the DA agents since DA came out in 1998 or 1999. So we've always sold the DA motors under PBG. You know, I, I guess maybe two or three years ago, Baldrick retired, 
And he said, Bogan, you're looking after motors now. If anyone wants to buy a bloody motor, I'm going to tell them to ring you. And I'm like, okay, sweet. All right, that's fine. Anyway, so I'm like, well, if I'm going to sell um, DA motors, I'm, I'm going to have to sell mufflers to go with them because you're going to need a muffler. So I'm mates with um, MTW, who I've always flown MTW exhaust systems. I, I know the guy from Germany, Volker, he, he came to the shootout one year. I mean, you know, you put two Kiwis and a German together, you can only imagine how much beer we drank. Mm. So, uh, so, I mean, so... I launched PBGRC website, I don't know, about nine months ago. So anyone in New Zealand now that wants a DA motor or some MTW exhausts or maybe Meslet propellers or they need a spinner, you know, oh, we need some Tigon, all of that kind of stuff that you need for a big model. And um, it's, it's, I mean, it's... I'm never going to um, make make a living out of it. I'm a computer programmer. That's how I make my living. Uh, I think if you want to make a small fortune out of um, error modeling, you need to start with a large fortune. That's true. That is yeah. true. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, in the last six months, I've been selling DA-70s like hotcakes. I think I've sold six DA-70s, and a, a month ago a guy rang up and he says, oh, I want to get a big motor. I said, oh, well, which... You know, how big do you want to go? He goes, well, how big have you got? I said, well, I said, mate, if money's not an option, you need a DA200. He said, I'll have one of them then. Oh, really? Oh, shit. <laughs> and then literally literally a couple of weeks later, I've got another guy bought a DA200. So, um, They've become popular I'm, over I'm, here as well. A lot of the iMacers now are running the DA200s. Oh, mate, it's the Rolls Royce. I mean, it is the best motor. Like, you know, if, if I didn't have a pillow to sleep on, it'd be because I've got a DA200 in my pillowcase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they really are good. Um, I know the 215, the 215's out now, and I'm looking forward to testing one and having a play with it. But, I mean, that, that 200 is just so smooth. So smooth. Yeah. So, so yeah, pbgrc.co.nz. Um, there's and there's other stuff on there too. There's foamies and batteries. Um, I'm, I'm good mates with the uh, um, importer uh, in New Zealand that brings all the stuff in from Horizon, and I've got an account with him, so I can ship batteries. Oh, yeah, with Horizon stuff. All that, all that fun stuff that people night radians. Oh, they're so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah I got one radians, of those. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, so PBG Composites has kind of slowly tapered off into the background. The website's still going, but it won't be going for too much longer. Um, but um, but yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to see because you know I was talking to someone the other day about this about how I think some of those the large hobby stores are sort of fading away now. I think it's going to come down to small online stores doing you know people sort of doing it as a side hustle. Uh, that will keep keep things going. Uh, and, you know, in New Zealand, I know it's pretty hard and pretty expensive to get products out there. Even I've tried to send, I used to sell 3D hobby shop planes and, uh, you know, I had a guy in New Zealand that wanted to buy a plane and oh, I got it to him somehow. I can't remember how, but it, gee, it was expensive to ship it over there. Yeah, you know, shipping between Australia and New Zealand is totally messed up and it's not COVID either. It's been messed up for a long time. One of the... Um, problems that we had not long ago is guys want to get flying iMac and they want to get a 50cc plane but we don't really have enough people in New Zealand where 
where we can get in a container full of 50cc planes because they'll sit around for 10 years. No one will buy them, you know. Um, so guys would literally, it was cheaper to buy an airline ticket to Brisbane. So like three or 400 bucks, fly to DA Australia, pick up like a 50cc or a 70cc kit and carry it home. Worked out cheaper than shipping it. Um, so um, we do have some 50cc stuff happening now and, and guys are starting to fly that. But the other thing is guys have started building again. People want to build because they're sick of like low quality stuff that's not straight. So they're like, right, I'm going to do a plug. I'm going to do a mold or I'm going to get a kit. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do some sanding. There's no, be there's no better therapy. If, if you've got a problem that needs solving in your head, go out to the workshop and just do some sanding. <laughs> That's true. Actually, yeah. I look at some of these uh, scratch builds, that, you know, and people put their sort of progress photos, and I just think, oh, that feeling of just doing that final sand on, on the wings and stuff like that. Like, oh, and then you just put it down and you look at it and it looks nice and, nice and fresh and all that kind of thing. You think, oh. That satisfaction you get—it's hard to describe, but uh, something to be said for it. What well, do you love I about mean, aero modelling, really? What's the one thing that keeps you hooked to to fly model planes? I mean, the whole thing from start to finish. You know, I, I really like now that I've got my own scratch-built iMac model. You know, people look at it and go, "Wow, who did their paint job?" Oh, there's this guy. He's called Bogan. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, oh, you did that? And go, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I go to a club night and I take a model along and I've been messing around a little bit with a DA35 in a two-meter pattern ship. Anyway, yeah, 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 because there's a, there's a lot of guys that are like, oh, I really, you know, I'm flying iMac and I, I want to fly pattern, but I don't want batteries and I don't want a YS. So I'm like, well, you know, I've started messing about with a DA35. Well, I had to make a bloody fancy, a fancy exhaust, like twist around into the, pardon me, into the tube pipe, and I take it to the club night, and guys are looking at it. One guy goes, oh, Bogan, who, who did you get to weld up that header? I go, oh, yeah, I've got this guy. He's called Bogan. Oh, oh, oh did you do that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, to take it to the extremes, uh, I just built a hanger rack. Do you know what a hanger rack is? No. Okay, it's this tiny little free flight indoor rubber powered model, and it's made of tiny sticks. Really simple to build. You can build one in a couple of hours. I, I, I built one as a club project. It's winter time. We're doing some indoor flying, so I built this thing called a hanger rack. Now, the minimum weight I think is six grams. <laughs> and uh, I was quite happy to put mine on the scales. I think it was like eight grams or something. I was like, oh, wow, eight grams. I mean, like, if you just look at it, it breaks. Um, but uh, we had, we had, we did some indoor flying, and I'm out there trying, you know, there, there's guys that are retired, and they're masters of this. And I'm like, mm, this is very, very frustrating. I need to figure out how to, how to trim this bloody thing out. Well, I, I managed to get my hanger rat flying not too bad, but, you know, I looked down the hall, the other guys in their hanger rats, like, they're just crashing into the walls, and I'm thinking, well, 
this is just, you know, I, I guess I, I know enough about what to do and how to trim it to actually, you know, fix a, fix a problem that it's got. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of like to de- diversify a little bit. I, I even flew 3D helicopter. Oh, gee. Yeah, I know. When I first moved out to the country, I thought, oh, I'm going to fly 3D helicopter because nobody knows that I'm doing it. And, uh, and no one can give me shit. So um, I got this electric helicopter and I started flying this 3D and I started flying it upside down and doing all these crazy TikToks. And, and I kind of got to the stage where I needed a 90-sized nitro-powered helicopter to kind of progress it on a little bit further. But I, I didn't. But you know what's amazing is at the time that I was doing some 3D heli, and I could fly that thing inverted, nose in, and not wreck it. You know, I didn't have any big massive. Every now and again, I'd scare the shit out of myself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that hard stuff but, to um, race when you get all crossed yeah. up. Oh, yeah. But I'd go out to the flying field with like a freestyle model, and hello, now the shit that I could only do one way, I can now do both ways. So that, that 3D heli flying was a really good mental um exercise to uh just like a big brain workout i guess you could say yeah it's true um, so it, like you know I, I guess if i wanted to get really serious about being like a really awesome crazy 3d flyer i'd probably get back into 3d heli straight away yeah but anyway so i did that i did that out in the country no one needs to know don't tell anybody <laughs> it's, no your secret's safe with me now there's a question that I ask everybody. It's my signature move that, that I ask every every guest. And it is our final question, and that is, what has been your all-time favorite model? And I know this is going to be a hard one for you because you've talked about some amazing models that you put a lot of hard work into. So uh, interested to know your answer. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, um, you did mention that before we started. Oh, it would be very, very difficult. I mean, my, my latest... Um, extra 300 I love that model I nearly lost it like a couple of months ago I was having some RF problems and I, uh, we won't we won't go into that but um, I think the model that um, I won the shootout with in 2004 it's still in my workshop we we built that model in seven days no. Um yeah, it's crazy. So we were practicing for, um, I think, maybe the TOC, and we crashed on Sunday afternoon. Uh, the model was too light. The battery tray disintegrated during a snap roll. So, you know, the model was written off. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I rung up work on Monday morning. I said, ah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I won't be at work today <laughs> and, and probably not tomorrow either. Um, there's a um, a guy in Australia called Alfie Pie. Unfortunately, he passed away in a in a tragic accident, and uh, he was a good friend of mine. He flew Pat and me and him. We competed against each other. We had a great time, and he'd ordered one of our TOC models as a kit. So Alfie, you know that kit that you've ordered? We've made all the components, but unfortunately, you're not getting it this year because we've just crashed, and now we need those components. So in the space of seven days, 
we completely took those components through to a finished model. I think by Tuesday afternoon, we had the wings and stabs, all the incidents, pins, everything, the motor on, and it needed servos putting in and paint. Um, when you crash a model, you can retrieve a lot of gear from that model that's already perfect, like um, those carbon fiber servo horns that get glued in. You know, you can pull them out of the out of the wreckage and sand them off, and they go straight in the next model. They're perfect. All the linkages are perfect as long as they're not bent. Servos might be a bit buggered. Uh, anyway, so I took home I think the wings and painted them that week and went back over to Baldrick's place and we finished it off on Saturday and Sunday. We test flew that new model literally seven days to the hour. We test flew it from when we'd written it off. So, um, and then it was straight to the TOC with that plane. Yeah. So we left that plane. Um, I think we left it in America for a while. We brought it home. It went into Baldrick's shed and it was sitting up on a big shelf for probably 10 years and one day, Baldrick, I mean, he's had lots of these same models out of the mould. And, and he said, oh, I think I might. You know that bloody plane that we took to the bloody shootout? And I said, he said, I, I think I might put an engine in it and some new servos and go and fly it. I said, Baldrick, we won the shootout with that plane. If we, if that plane gets crashed, you'll be devastated. Oh, yeah. I'll build a new one, he says. So he, he, he did. Anyway, um, a year ago, I finally managed to build a decent-sized workshop at my place. I've got 100 square metres of, of big shed. Oh, that's, that's and, a dream. Uh, so it's awesome. It's uh, 7 by 14. Uh, so if you're in America, you can uh, convert that to uh, yards or however the hell you measure it. But anyway, all you need to know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a big shed. You could almost do basketball in the middle, I suppose, if you've got everything out. So I've got that plane in there now. It's sitting up on a shelf, and my plan is to put the wings and stabs on and then, like, hoist it up into the into the roof upside down. Yep. So that when you walk into the shed, you sort of look around, but then when you look up, you'll see, yeah, my uh, my PBG two sixty. Perfect. Oh, that's yep. yeah. That's what you need to do with it. That's what I'd do with it. I, I couldn't fly it. I, I, it mean it means too much to to go and risk it, but hang it up so that everybody can see it. Oh, yeah, that's 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 perfect. I mean, the thing the thing is, like, decked out. It's got all the sponsors, stickers. It's got this great big kiwi fern up the side. And, you know, back then, when we'd go to America, this was back when New Zealand started winning the America's Cup. And so, it, you know, it's got home of the America's mm -hmm. Cup <laughs> written on the side. It's got, uh, it's got all the Sahara Casino um, TOC logos and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, it's. Uh, I, I suppose that would would have to be my favourite. Well, one. Fraser, I'll tell you what. It's been an absolute pleasure to just sit here and listen to the stories being told. You're an excellent storyteller, and you know, it's just it's literally been been an absolute pleasure. Now, I think the the amount that you've done for the flying scene, especially in Southern Hemisphere, I think is massive. I think it's you know, you know that. Not only in the plane development, but the TIC work and that kind of stuff. You really put New Zealand model flying on the map, 
uh, like I don't think anybody else has. And you've made a, a massive effort throughout those years. You've been to Australia many times and competed in different events and got a lot of good friends over here. And the good news is you've got plenty of years left. So a big thank you to you for joining us here on the Flat Out RC uh, podcast and keep up the good work. Well, thanks very much. It's been um, it's been been very good. Um, so a few people I'd like to thank. Uh, a nice yellowtail Shiraz <laughs> from South Australia. I've been sipping sipping away slowly at that. And and um, but you know, yeah, there, there's a few people. Obviously, Baldra. I mean, the amount of time that he's put in has just been phenomenal. Um, so he, he's a, he's a he's a massive guy. Grant Finlay or Auntie, as I nicknamed him. He was a good mentor for me and, and taught me a hell of a lot. Um, obviously, my wife, who, I mean, at one stage, uh, there's no way that a model aeroplane would be left on the driveway. That would be, it would mm-hmm. get run over. Yeah, run over. But um, then, you know what, one year I came back from a big competition in Japan with a bit of prize money, and hello, it's enough for a deposit <laughs> on a house. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, swings and roundabouts. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so, um, but, yeah, no, there, there's, there's definitely been a lot of people that have that have helped out. I mean, especially back in those TRC days, we, we'd farm out, you know, one guy, he'd be making spinners. One guy's making spats. One guy's making tailplanes. So there's a lot of people that have, um, that have been involved over the years. So uh, thank you to them. But um, yeah, no, this is um, this has been quite good. I look forward to uh, to it getting posted out on the internet. People can make cheeky <laughs> comments. And, uh... <laughs> nah, they'll be. They're going to love this episode. Yeah. This is a this is a good one. <laughs> Thanks, Fraser. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. Well, uh, on a final note, I, I look forward to catching up with literally. I mean, I don't think I've ever come away from a flying event thinking, gee. Gee, that guy was not very nice, was he? But you know, I, I like to get on with lots of people. I enjoy, I enjoy drinking a beer after the event, and and um, yeah, more international events and having a good time. I look forward to winter time in New Zealand at the moment, so it's a little bit rubbish. But we're only a couple of months away from it getting nice again, and yep, I look forward to travelling across the Pacific Ocean and standing in the Arizona desert. And uh, I'm not too sure about Corona beer anymore because in the last year I've actually I've actually started brewing my own beer. Oh no! So I've kind of PPG yeah, beer. I'm kind of like a craft brewery. Yeah, well PPG brewery, brewery actually. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is literally to put it into perspective. My birthday was in March. Now it's um, just gone the start of August. Uh, my sister Deborah. She bought me uh, a box of Corona for my birthday. <laughs> Thank you very much, Deborah. That box of Corona is still sitting in the garage because the 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 craft lager that I'm brewing is so much better that <laughs> I'm just waiting for I'm waiting for guests to turn up to drink that Corona. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Back to the drinking then. Yeah. Thanks. Excellent. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know. 
that's all I have for you this week on the Flat Out RC podcast. Thanks for joining me once again. A big thank you to Fraser Briggs. We we had a few goes at trying to make that uh, that interview happen, but uh, we finally got there, and uh, he was hilarious. He was a great guy to have a chat with and just sit and listen to the stories. Awesome storyteller. I don't think I've had a better storyteller than uh, Fraser on the uh, on the show. So I really really enjoyed that, and hope you did as well. And of course, if you did, tell your friends and sign up to. Uh, Everything the Flat Out RC does, the the podcast here, just press that subscribe button, uh, the Instagram page, Flat Out uh, Facebook page, and also YouTube as well. Not much YouTube action happening because we're locked down. And the way the numbers are looking down here in Melbourne, I think we might be in for another week, but fingers crossed we're not. Uh, big shout out to everybody that's living in New South Wales at the moment and lockdowns there. Uh, situation not too great but uh, we'll get through this and we'll be back at the flying field just hopefully it's pouring with rain really windy where you're living so you're not missing out on getting out to the field uh that's the best way that i find that's what i hope for in lockdown so anyway chin up we'll get through this all and i'll be back next week with another good guest talk to you soon <laughs>